0: All right, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. We're actually going to back up to chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, to tack that on to our reading this morning, and then all of chapter 11 be found on page 53, I believe, in the Bible in front of you, beginning again at chapter 10, verse 28. This is God's word. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses says, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the hand mill, and, with, and all the firstborn of the cattle." There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of, my, any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray together. Father, we are, are so grateful that you own us as your child, as your children, as just has been sung to us. That the five bleeding wounds of Christ are, they pour effectual prayers before us, even when we come to you and we feel and know in a profound way our own weaknesses and the weakness of our own prayer, that you pray a mighty prayers on our behalf. And that those wounds plead before your throne of grace, forgive they cry. We praise you for this forgiveness. We pray that you would show us something of it today, that you would lead us to Christ, and in coming to Christ, we might love him and honor him with all of our hearts and souls. We pray this in his name. Amen. After nine plagues, Pharaoh still thinks he's in charge. Nine plagues, horrendous, horrible plagues. He still thinks he is the one who has sovereign will over life and death. And at the height of his arrogant defiance, we come to the end of chapter 10. That's why we backed up and read those verses. Get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Now for those who study the Bible regularly, does this remind you of something? Does it resonate with you that that was said of of another God, of the true God in Exodus chapter 33 verse 20? there says, but he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. This is the almighty God in all of his glory in all of his grandeur and in all of his splendor and holiness and righteousness and all of his excellencies and perfections. Man cannot look upon this God and live. And here now, Pharaoh's in a sense, deifying himself saying, you're not going to look on me and live. Even after nine devastating plagues, Pharaoh still thinks that he has the upper hand. But as we know, and as we'll come to see, this contest between Pharaoh and the Lord, this spiritual battle, much greater than a geopolitical battle between two people, the Israelites and the Egyptians, but between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, here clashing, will come to a clear end with a clear winner. Pharaoh's been given plenty of warning, plenty of opportunities to repent and to seek a softness of his heart, and yet he resistes over and over, and his hardness becomes all the more brittle, doesn't it? The final plague here, though, is so devastating, as we'll come to see, that by the end of it, he says, let my, I'm not just going to let you go. I'm going to say, get out of here. All of you, go together. The plagues taught... Pharaoh eventually, and only temporarily, how foolish it is to fight against God. He is no match for this God. Who can resist the will of this God? That's what Isaiah 14, 27 says. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn his hand back? Arthur Pink, an author I don't quote very much, but he has this wonderful line in his commentary on Exodus. He says, as a worm may seek to resist the tread of an elephant, so too a creature is able to successfully defy the Almighty. God can grind to powder the hardest heart and bring down to dust the haughtiest spirit. So yet one more plague we read here, the most horrifying plague that breaks Pharaoh's back ultimately. And this plague touches everyone. It doesn't matter your position, your power, your wealth, or your magicians. Everyone is touched by this plague, this swift judgment of God against sin and evil. Those in the palace are no more secure than that slave woman working at the millstone. The promise here is to bring judgment. Swift and final in 10 horrible plagues. The ESV puts a heading above this passage. Did you see it? It says, a final plague threatened. I wonder why they did that. This isn't a threat. This is a promise. God is promising that this is coming. He's been doing this over and over. They are under a sentence of death. But it's not just a promise of destruction and judgment, but it's a promise of plundering. Did you notice that here? It's this marvelous part of the story that sometimes we, we gloss over. That God has been promising since the time of Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15 that his people were going to be enslaved and put under the tyranny of another kingdom, Egypt, for 400 years. But then, after 400 years, he tells Abraham, they will go out of that land. He will deliver them out of that land with great possessions. That's Genesis 15. Then we read further in Exodus 3, 22, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for her silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is an amazing story, isn't it? Incredible. Wonderful story but some get bent out of shape, don't they? Because they look at this and they say, is God asking them to steal from them? And that's to misunderstand what's happening here. This is a free will offering. They just ask. And the Egyptians are so overcome with the judgment of God against them and their firstborn. They say, here, take all my jewelry, go and have it and be on your way. Every last one of you. Now these would have been signals to the the Hebrew mindset as they go away with great possession, as they plunder these people and eventually as they'll make their way through the waters on dry land and ultimately to turn around and to see the final judgment upon Pharaoh and his people as the waters engulf them and close in on them in judgment. It would have been a signal to them as they start to receive all of this jewelry that they were actually engaged in what's known in the ancient world as an ordeal. In this case, it's a a water ordeal. And here's how it goes. We've we've shared this before. Essentially, if you charge me as guilty of some crime, the way, I'm glad we don't do it this way anymore, you would do is you, you throw me into the river. If I make my way out of the river, it shows that I'm innocent and you're guilty. You get thrown into the river and I get all your stuff. But if I'm guilty, I'll drown in the river and you get my stuff. You get to plunder my possessions. And essentially what is happening here is that God is putting them through this ordeal, this water ordeal that eventually they will go through with all these great possessions. But then as the enemy, as the ones being judged will come, they will be engulfed in the waters of judgment and Israel will go with all of their loot. This final plague will cause Pharaoh to drive them away completely, he says here. Do you remember last week in the final, in the plague uh, eight? seven, eight, and nine, twice in those occasions, Pharaoh said, well, who's going with you, Moses? I'll let the men go, but you keep the women and children behind, and I'll hold on to your herds. Moses says, no, we're all going to go, the complete, every last one of us. And then he goes tries a second time to bargain with Moses, and Pharaoh says, well, okay, you can take your women and children, but I'm going to keep your flocks as a hook to keep them so that they'd come back. And here it says, no, completely, every last one of them. No one was left behind. Don't miss that fact. None are left behind. The same is true for your redemption and mine. Listen to the words of Jesus. All that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing Of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, none are left behind. A complete rescue and salvation. If that are not encouraging enough, Jesus goes on in John 10 and says, I give them eternal life, and that they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You may have come in here this morning with a lack of assurance of your salvation, that you're hanging on by a thread that God would still love you, that God would forgive you, that God would let you into his perfect, glorious, gracious kingdom. And this morning, I want you to hear the words of Jesus resonating in your heart that if you have faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you will be saved to the uttermost. All whom the Father has given in eternity to the Son, the Son comes and pays for you, purchases you, those five bleeding wounds for you, plead for you, even now the right hand of God, Father Almighty, and you are his child forever kept, and no one, nothing you can do, nothing you can say, nothing you can experience can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. None will be left behind. This is a complete salvation for all who trust in Christ. We find here that finally the Egyptians are starting to get a sense that the God of the Hebrews is a whole lot more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians. In verse 3, and the Lord gave the people favor or grace in the sight of the Egyptians. Well, duh, it's about time. Nine plagues. But only one here who was not yet convinced. Pharaoh, who would let them go, but would ultimately go after them to his own demise, of course. So he sends Moses again to speak the word of God to Pharaoh in saying, thus says the Lord. Do you remember a few weeks back when God told Moses, you will be as God to them? You will be as God to Pharaoh because I'm going to speak through you. You are simply my vessel, my mouthpiece, and I, God, Yahweh, am going to speak and say to Pharaoh, you think these have been bad. The boils, uncomfortable. The gnats and the flies, annoying but now you're going to lose your firstborn, every last one of you. Now's the point where, to modern ears, we wonder, has God gone too far? The gnats and, and the flies and the boils and the bloody river are all kind of odd, and, and, but, but how can we possibly defend God on this? Well, let's remember a few things. First, the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years under Egyptians. And that they too commanded that their sons be killed. Because Pharaoh was troubled by their growing numbers. Secondly, let's remember that Pharaoh has had plenty of warning. Nine plagues. Way back in chapter 4, verse 22, he is warned. And then nine plagues later, he's still resolute. Still thinks he's in charge. Still thinks he's the master of the universe. Then finally, let's remember that the consequences of sin and the consequences of evil is death, is death. The Lord said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Paul, in Romans 3, tells us that the wages of sin is death, that what your sin and mine deserves, what it has worked, what it has earned for us, is death. It's not a question of if you're going to die. Of course, it's a question of when you're going to die. And every last person in this room will ultimately end life with a funeral. And that's why death gets all these euphemisms. I even did it. I caught myself. They pass away. No, they're dead. And we don't like to speak about it that way because it's so haunting. But here, plague after plague, Pharaoh's not softened. And death is coming his way because he deserves death. Apart from the grace of God, apart from the delivering hand of God, every last one of us deserves judgment and death. There is not one repentant sinner in hell. There is not one. Revelation 16 tells us the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. We have this sense of the people in hell are saying, "Oh, if only we could get another chance no. The, Everyone in hell is unrepentant forever and therefore under the just wrath of God. Everyone in hell thinks they deserved heaven and everyone in heaven knows they deserved hell. And yet because Christ went to hell for us, they get heaven because the wages of Christ's righteousness have been earned for you. That you can be forgiven of your sins and welcomed into God's everlasting, perfect kingdom, forever kept. And to know that although you did not deserve it, it is from grace, from first to last, undeserved, unmerited, in fact, demerited favor of God poured out upon all who would believe. Every firstborn would die, from the greatest to the least. From Pharaoh's house, even his son, to the lowliest slave girl who is working at the mill. This one ominous threat promise that even Pharaoh's son wouldn't be exempt, would have put a huge lump in their throats, would have been this ominous, because if Pharaoh dies, and we know we're going to die because Egypt, they were obsessed with death, right? Obsessed with all things that dealt with death, pyramids and and tombs and mummies and on and on and on and on goes their whole religion but, but Pharaoh's son they put all their hopes in because if, the, if Pharaoh dies at least we have the prince and he too will replace the god, the god Ra their son god as Pharaoh as we've discussed is the, is the uh, they thought the incarnation of the god Ra he was the successor of the gods if you will and he'd be the successor of Ra Notice when the angel of death is promised to come. The ESV says at midnight, but it's really just in the middle of the night. They don't know when, just like the passage was read to us earlier, that there's a coming judgment. We don't know when. Not even the son knows when the final judgment, the final justice against evil and sin will come when he will judge the quick, the living and the dead, he comes in the middle of the night. Well, as much as the Egyptians uh, were obsessed with uh, death, were a culture of death, they were afraid of the dark. They were afraid of the night. The reason they were afraid of the night is because their god, Ra, departed over the night. And so they were without his protection. You see, as it were, the angel of death comes in the middle of the night to take out the firstborn, to scare them, to say, no, he's in control. Their God goes to sleep. How silly is that? Our God, says Psalm 121, does not sleep or slumber. He is always awake, either to judge or to save. Verse 6 tells us there will be a great cry throughout all Egypt. Of course, there was cry of anguish, cry of grief, crying of sorrow. But the cry here he has in mind is not that kind of crying. It's the kind of crying that God's people had before God came to rescue them. Remember, I heard your cries, he says, and I come to deliver you. I've come to redeem you. Those cries that Israel cried out under the enslavement of their sin, of their taskmaster, of Pharaoh, of evil, was heard by the one true God. Whereas their gods are asleep and do not hear. He goes on to say, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. Did that make any of you stumble? I love the Bible when it has these little details. When you see things like that, like where on earth did that come from? Pay attention and slow down because it's interesting. Because a dog growling here um, is talking about this God, Anubis. Anubis is the sidekick of Osiris. Osiris is the god in Egypt of death. Anubis is his sidekick of the underworld. He's the one who supervised the embalming process. He's the one that led you through the corridors of the afterlife into the afterlife. And what is Anubis depicted as? A dog. A dog head. How ridiculous is that? How ridiculous are the gods that I put my trust in? even sillier than that, my idols, the things that I elevate beyond what is appropriate, beyond what is righteous, those things that I worship, that I bow down before in my sin, and you as well, as silly as gods with dog heads and human bodies. And here what he's saying is that no dog will growl against any of my people Israel. You wanna know who's the master of life and death? You wanna know who leads you into the afterlife? It is the God of the Hebrews. Death is an ominous reality. It is a guarantee for you. So we euphemize it, we we push it away. You either become a a nihilist and and you you despair if you're actually going to have a consistent worldview, or you become a moralist and you you say, I'm going to be better, I'm going to be good. At least my good's going to outweigh my bad. Or you become a hedonist and you just fill your life with stuff and pleasures and things to so as to somehow relieve or or anesthetize the, the pain of death. But a lot of people refuse to do the one thing that God requires in order to be able to look death straight in the face and say, you have not conquered me. And that is to repent of your sins, to admit that you are who God says you are, that you'll never measure up that you'll never be good enough and yet that God in Christ has been good enough for you and that you put your trust and faith in him because it's not a threat, the coming judgment of God that was read to us from Matthew 24. It's a promise. Don't allow your heart to continue to be hardened. Herein is what makes the distinction, as he says in verse seven, between Israel and between the Egyptians. It wasn't that Israel was a better people, or they were more moral, or God saw something in them, uh, some fiber of, of, of goodness that he could then work with that he didn't see in the Egyptians. No, of course not. What did, the, what did Israel do? They took all that jewelry and they went and made a golden calf and worshiped it. They weren't better people. Just like you, if you're a Christian, you're not Saved because you're better. You're saved because you know your best would never be good enough under the perfect law of God, under his standards. And you needed someone to stand in your place to be perfect for you, to take down all your idols, to save you from the enslaving misery of sin and to give you a hope of everlasting life. It is appointed that man must die once, says Hebrews 9, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. God knows something of losing a firstborn son. In his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his beloved son, as politically incorrect and repulsive as the firstborn plague is, it is nothing compared to the fact that he who is righteous died for the unrighteous. He who is blameless died for those who are blameworthy. When all of the wrath and justice of God was unleashed upon him on Calvary's cross to take it for you so that now the day of judgment, it is appointed for you to die one day. When you face the Lord, he will not shun you. No one can snatch you from his hands, not even death. And he will take you into his kingdom because his justice has not been ignored, but his justice has been carried out upon the shoulders, upon the back, upon the scars of his beloved son, who was sacrificed for you so that the coming judgment of God might not be a scary prospect, but might be something that you eagerly wait for. May it be so for all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. I pray for any in here who have not yet come to that place where they have come to the end of themselves. Pray that you'd bring them there and show them Christ and that you would enable them to put their faith in you, to trust in you, to to pray for the forgiveness of their sins and to, to ask for your help and for hope. And for all of us who have, Lord, Help us to be those kinds of people that are eagerly waiting for your return, that you might make this horrible, broken world right again. And until that day, keep us faithful to this message that many, many, many more would come to trust in the saving work of our Savior Jesus. For we pray this in his name. Amen.